Hey everyone, I'm Sally Abed. I'm Dina Kraft. I'm a Palestinian activist in Israel. And I'm a Jewish-Israeli journalist. This is Groundwork. A podcast about Palestinians and Israelis refusing to accept the status quo and working to change it. Groundwork is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. In Israel-Palestine right now, many people feel trapped in this century-long circle of violence. And if we're honest, people have been feeling like that for a long time. Yeah, the closest breakthrough came 30 years ago in 1993 with the Oslo Accords. The deal was supposed to bring lasting two-state peace between Israelis and Palestinians. Though parts of the peace deal were implemented, it ultimately fell apart. Since then, no other diplomatic solution has replaced the two-state solution and has majority support. In our episode, we're going to hear a story about Mai Pundak, executive director of A Land for All. She's also the daughter of one of the architects of Oslo. But it's not a story about the past as much as about the future. Mai thinks she may be onto something that can get it right where Oslo went wrong. It's not a two-state solution, not a one-state solution but an idea of two independent states, one homeland. Some call it confederation. So we're going to touch upon a lot of big issues and historical events, but we're mostly going to do that from the perspective of Mai. And because of that, it's also mainly from a Jewish-Israeli perspective. This is our final episode of the season. So please, if you haven't already, before you listen to this episode, pause it. And take a moment now to like us. And even better, leave a review. It will make a huge difference. And after you listen, make sure to check out all of our other episodes. We've told stories about the environment, about the differences between the Palestinian struggle in Gaza versus the West Bank versus the diaspora. Stories that bring you onto the streets of the protest movement in Israel and into Area C of the West Bank, and so much more. All right, without further ado, let's get to today's episode. Sally and I traveled to meet Mai Pundak in Jerusalem. In 1993, Mai Pundak was an eight-year-old girl living in Tel Aviv. And she had a big secret. Not about schoolmate crushes or surprise parties, the kind of things most kids have. No, her secret was about the future of her country and her father. My dad would fly pretty much every week for a couple of days. I remember it was very secret. So I remember like people asking me, like, where's dad? And I was like, I don't know. You know, I, I knew, but I was like, I don't know, just playing dumb. In those years, Mai remembers her father, Ron Pundak, always with a suitcase in his hand, on his way to or from Oslo, Norway. He was a Middle East historian and a policy researcher. And with another colleague, was having clandestine meetings with a senior official from the Palestine Liberation Organization, known as the PLO. At the time, it was officially illegal to even meet with someone from the PLO. During these meetings, they drafted six typed pages that would become the basis of the Oslo Peace Accords. Mai didn't know the details, just that he was working on peace, and that he could not tell anyone where he was going on his travels. But she remembers working for hours on homemade signs and then rushing to the door with them to welcome back her dad from his journey. There was like not one time that I missed making him a big 
kind of welcome home sign. I would be, yeah, I really loved, I loved to paint and to draw. And I was doing these every week, like again and again and again. His work to create a Palestinian state alongside an Israeli one would have felt to most like complete fantasy at the time. But he was an optimist, always saying, It's achievable. It's, it, it will happen. It, it's happening, you know? So that's the way that I grew up. Mai's mother tells a story of a moment shortly before news of the peace deal went public. She tells this story that they meet at the kitchen late at night. And he tells her, I have something to tell you. And she tells him, I also have something to tell you. And then he says, I think we're going to sign the peace agreement. I think we're going to reach an agreement with the Palestinians. And then my mom tells him, I'm pregnant. <laughs> That's my younger brother. And when she tells this story, she always says, like, mine worked out a little better. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Arafat, chairman of the Executive Council of the Palestine Liberation Organization. On a sunny blue skies morning on September 13, 1993, Mai watched the Oslo ceremony on TV from her home in Tel Aviv. Welcome to this great occasion of history and hope. A beaming President Bill Clinton stood between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat, leader of the PLO. Both Rabin and Arafat spoke of ending the unfathomable pain and price of the conflict. Enough of blood and tears. And then the two longtime enemies shook hands. They signed the historic peace deal. The image was broadcast across the world. It became iconic. From Gaza City to Jerusalem, crowds gathered in the streets and cheered. The two-state solution was the phrase on everyone's lips. Remember the pop culture then being like, peace was cool, you know? Peace was cool. In Israel, Shir La Shalom, the song of peace, became the anthem of the time. Israel was supposed to transfer various powers slowly, over the course of five years, to the Palestinians. And they started to do that. But despite early markers of what might have appeared as trust-building, cracks quickly began to show. There was continued bloodshed between Jews and Palestinians. Segments on both sides became increasingly skeptical of the plan. In Israel, led by national religious Jews, a counter-movement gained steam. They viewed any kind of territorial compromise as heresy. And in 1995, at a massive pro-peace rally in Tel Aviv's Central Square, Rabin was shot and killed by a right-wing religious Jew, a virulent opponent of Oslo. I remember when Rabin was killed, I was sitting outside of the principal's office. I was 10, sobbing. I can't study math right now. I just shocked. Israel's leader, the country's face of the Oslo Accords, was dead. Not long after, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was in staunch opposition to the Oslo Accords, was elected prime minister. And eventually, tensions boiled over into the second intifada. Desperation took over. People on all sides felt battered and disillusioned. In the West Bank and Gaza, there were near daily clashes between Israeli soldiers and Palestinian youth. In Israel, buses and public spaces were being targeted in suicide bombing. 
Mai watched as the implementation of the steps her father had so carefully outlined ground to a halt. While Israeli politicians and the general public were quick to blame Palestinians for the failure, her father found special fault with the Israeli government for not fully following through on their side of the agreement. He felt they were, quote, stingy, especially when it came to developing the Palestinian economy, the release of prisoners, and the fact that they continued the expansion of settlements in the West Bank. He would later say the violent backlash could probably have been avoided if Israel had not, in his words, screwed up. By the early 2000s, Oslo had gone from a symbol of peace to a reminder of why it felt impossible. Ron died of cancer in 2014. But Mai says, despite the tragedies that followed the Oslo Accords, he always believed that something profound had been accomplished. When people said, like, Oslo failed or Oslo, he was like, that's not Oslo. What Oslo is, is the paradigm shift of two people acknowledging their right for self-determination in this place and the mutual acknowledgement of the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. That's the success of Oslo. That's the huge thing that happened. This idea that Palestinians acknowledge Israel's right to exist and that Palestinians should get a fully independent state really stuck with Mai. She became a human rights lawyer and worked on these very issues. Even after Oslo took a nosedive, Israelis and Palestinians, she thought, should be able to determine how they'd be governed. And while two states seemed difficult, the alternative, one state, seemed much harder. A one-state solution where Gazan and West Bank Palestinians got citizenship would spell the end of the Jewish state. And she knew that was unacceptable for most Israelis. But gradually, she started to question the foundations of the two-state plan. What would it really mean to put into practice? What is a two-state solution, actually? What does it even mean today? Does it mean equality? No. Does it mean real Kilo partnership? Does it mean a better future? Not necessarily. Does it mean any kind of sustainable? I mean, it, it just became this empty shell. A lot of people doubt the viability of the two-state solution now because of just how many more settlers there are living in the West Bank. What was supposed to be a Palestinian state? In 1993, when Oslo was signed, there were 115,000 settlers. Now, there are some 450,000, thanks to successive Israeli governments pushing to build them. But while Mai acknowledges that this is a big issue, it's not the only reason she started to doubt the Oslo roadmap. One of the biggest problems of the history of the peace camp is the paradigm of separation. Since Oslo days until now, peace was always synonymous with divorce, Jews and Palestinians separating. In 2019, Mai was living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the Gordian knot of the conflict. Both Israeli Jews and Palestinians claim it as their capital. It was in Jerusalem that she first got to know Palestinians and Orthodox Jews, and she learned more deeply about how they see things. If I ignore them, I am not doing the work of reading the reality that needs to be changed. And in fact, she became really close friends with some of them. Three of my best friends today, one is Palestinian, one is an ultra-Orthodox, and one lives in Tkoa. He's a settler, for crying out loud. I know, me! I, I, I don't cross the, the green line to meet. And we fight and we argue. And, he know, you know, it's everything is in... But Malas, he's my one of my best friends. The fact that I now am fighting against Jewish supremacy, occupation, and apartheid 
but my fight is not against every individual settler. He is not my enemy anymore. You know, he as an individual. Why not? Why not? Because he needs to be part of the change. The message she was getting from her settler friend, as well as religious Jews and Palestinians, was clear. We don't want to leave. And we don't want to split Jerusalem or the land of Israel-Palestine apart. They cared too much about the integrity of the land. Its holiness, yes, but also its wholeness. And on top of that, Mai started to realize just how connected she also was to the land. She took a leadership course with Marshall Gans, a veteran labor organizer and Harvard professor. He asked her a basic question, why? Why do this peace work? She answered by talking about the importance of peace, equality, and justice. But the professor wasn't satisfied with her focus on these abstract values. He kept pushing. He kept asking her. Why are you doing this? Why is it so important for you? Why can you not sleep at night because of occupation? Why do you wake up and do this work? And I was like, ah, okay. I'm carrying my ancestral trauma of the Holocaust. I don't want to be a refugee. I have no home. (laughs) I mean, I, I had this really moment of like acknowledging. It was a very difficult moment. I think a lot of the times uh, for Jewish people and Jewish solidarity movements and anti-occupation uh, movements here, a lot of the times they think they are expected to almost uh, relinquish their connection to their Judaism, yeah. to the place, to their connection to this land. Yes, I want to end occupation. Yes, I want to end Jewish supremacy. Yes, I'm fighting for a Palestinian state. But I'm also doing this, and maybe first and foremost, because this is my home. Because I, this is my only home, because this is the place where I am raising my family and my kids, because this is the place where I have a future. My future is integrated and interlinked and interconnected to your future. It started to seem like the two-state solution had always been playing shadow games with what people really wanted. I suddenly realized that like, I'm not even believing myself. Before we get to some of the answers Mai found, we want to share one other issue Mai brought up. She had always believed that any solution should better the lives of both Jews and Palestinians. And for most of her life, she thought that would come through building two distinct states. But in the 2010s, she watched as the Black Lives Matter movement was sweeping American streets. It challenged white supremacy, and it was demanding that white people acknowledge the privileges that they had enjoyed for much of American history, and then do something about it. And it made her rethink what shared space and shared struggle might look like. Would two states as outlined in Oslo really help Palestinians? Would they be able to have a working economy? Would they have safety? And she wasn't so sure. We have to be much more radical. Um, We have to be much more honest. We have to be much more direct. For Mai, watching Black Lives Matter in the streets left her with more questions than answers. It's like she was playing a childhood game of hotter, colder, trying to hone in on what could actually work if two states just wasn't possible. I was lacking hope. I I just felt that in my anti-occupation work, I was missing a vision. It took me a long time to acknowledge that what I've been holding on so, so, so tight is just not working anymore. It, It was very, that was really sad. Because again, Kilu, that's how I grew up. You know, that's who I am. Amidst the doubt, she sat down for dinner with a friend working for a new group she'd never heard of called Land for All. My friend, uh, who was part of the initial team, told me, you know, we're trying to write 
an alternative vision to end the conflict. You know, kind of stepping out of the box of the classic two states and reimagining what it can look like. I was like, what? we're allowed to do that? You're allowed to imagine? We're allowed to think that there's something beyond like the binary of the one state, two states, and therefore the status quo, and therefore nothing to do, and therefore despair? It blew my mind. The model they proposed was a confederation. And as you can tell, my jumped at the idea. The confederation keeps many of the ideas of the two-state solution, with two separate sovereign entities. But it would also have freedom of movement along and across the June 1967 borders. Think of the EU, albeit with key differences. While each country has its own government, Israeli citizens are allowed to live in Palestine as residents, just as Palestinian citizens are allowed to live in Israel as residents. Everyone has equal rights. Palestine will be free to grant citizenship to Palestinian refugees, as Israel will be able to grant citizenship to diaspora Jews. And while each country has its own laws, there are also certain decisions made together, such as on the economy and international security. In a confederation here, Jerusalem would be a shared city, the capital of both states with a joint municipality. The motto is, Two states, one homeland. Two states, one homeland. Mai says it addresses the needs of Palestinians by creating a Palestinian state, ending the occupation, and ensuring freedom of movement. It also addresses key desires of those on the Israeli right, who don't want to divide Jerusalem and who want Jewish settlers to be able to remain in the West Bank. The notion of the homeland that we share, that we all belong to this homeland, that we all care about this homeland and, want, and have a right to the entirety of the homeland, will lead us to a reality where we want to protect it and we all live in it. The confederation model, Mai says, would also be safer for both Israelis and Palestinians. I think that one of the problems in the peace process until now, it was very oriented towards Jewish security. Um, no one has even talked about Palestinian security. It's never part of the conversation. That needs to change, she says. There will be no security for Israeli Jews if there would be no security for Palestinians. And so just by virtue of switching that up, there would be more security. Because if you have Palestinians and Israelis living in this homeland and sharing it, people will want less to blow it up. And to Israelis who feel it would be too dangerous to share the land, my points out. Right now, we're not living in a state of security. Every two years or less, there's war between Israel and Gaza. In the past six months, 30 Israelis and more than 150 Palestinians were killed. Mai knows that the Confederation plan won't be easy. But much like her father, she's a pragmatic optimist. We need vision. We deserve a political vision. We deserve hope. We deserve to dream towards something. We deserve to put a goal so we can know where we're going. Because right now we're not going anywhere. If anything, we're just drilling a much deeper hole that will make us impossible to achieve peace. So for me, even having, renewing the conversation, giving something else for people to think about, you know, breaking the binary of the one state, two state, nothing can happen. Mm -hmm. Just bringing some new ideas and new energy to the conversation is by itself mm -hmm. very, very important. A key point here. 
Neither my nor her organization, A Land for All, claim to have all the answers. It's a draft. It's an idea. We invite people to argue with it. We invite people to change it. We invite people to take it and make it their own. And we definitely, we are doing and we need to do more work. The status quo will not be here forever. So we, we can't wait till it blows up. We have to give good answers right now. And so I'm also humbly saying, like, please come and join us and help us do this work. Before we ended our interview, Sally and I asked Mai to show us her Jerusalem neighborhood. What are we seeing? Where, where, where are we walking? The two of them, who've been friends for a long time, walk arm in arm. So we're right in the intersection of a couple of neighborhoods. Um, like this is kind of like a, a real center of, of Jerusalem. The last of the day's syrupy light was falling over the sidewalks and low stone walls. As we walked, Mai reflected on how she had built upon her father's work. I think that I'm following the footsteps of my dad because, yes, A, I'm a realist optimist and I'm committed to not giving up and thinking creatively on, on how. How do we get there? And I think the other is just being a humanist and seeing Palestinians as human beings and as my only partner to this future. We come to the intersection of a leafy street. So now, now we're in Kaftet <laughs> November, uh, 29th November Street. It's named after the day in 1947 when the UN voted to end the British mandate and establish a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. The plan had a name, partition. In other words, separation. When the historic vote was made, Zionists rejoiced. Palestinians rejected the much smaller state they were offered. War soon broke out. For Palestinians, it would end without them having a state at all. Looking up at the sign, Mai says, There used to be a lot of Zionisms and all kinds of versions of Zionisms. And I think that Kaftet ben Umvember is, you know, one of those, you know, marks in history where, um, yeah, where we kind of chose one version of Zionism that I don't think is the best one. And it closes a lot of chapters of other opportunities of Zionism. By other Zionisms, she means the other visions that are more inclusive and focused on true equality with Palestinians. What is democracy? What is Israel? What does it mean to be a Zionist or an Israeli in 2023? This is the moment to kind of say, okay, it's been 75 years. Where are we going? What's next? What is the next chapter of this place? So this is a street that can actually say, yeah, there are two people. We are going to live here together. We're meant to live here together. And how can we do that? That was our story with Mai Pundak. Well, I feel like I learned a lot from Mai. Um, right. And for me, it was really helpful because I had always thought of Confederation as totally pie in the sky. But the grand outlines of the plan seemed to me to be the idea that could satisfy most of the people most of the time and could be the key unraveling us from this terrible, terrible knot that we're stuck in. And I was also struck and, and through doing the episode with mine, but also in conversations with you, like why it is so critical for Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza 
to also be able to have access to Israel itself, you know, in terms of not just not, not the idea of necessarily being a, a resident, but to be able to visit, to be able to go to the sea, to be able to go near the homes that their families had once been refugees from, you know, that this idea that this the love of the land and the connection to it doesn't stop because there are these soaring walls and checkpoints. For me, um, you know, it's always hard for, for us as Palestinians to speak about, you know, solutions because there really isn't any solution that would bring, you know, complete historic justice, which means, you know, it would completely bring all the refugees back to their homes and it would uh, compensate for all these decades of oppression and persecution and humiliation and, and really, you know, living under very, very violent military regime. And with that being said, I do think that we need to start imagining a sustainable peace and what it means like and what are the possible solutions for us to go through. And that necessarily means acknowledging that we share this homeland with the Jewish people. It took me some time to, to, to accept fully. It really did. Uh, and I do think that it has to do, and that my ability to even imagine a shared homeland, you know, that transformation only happens when you work together, when you struggle together, when you fight together. And that's why Palestinians in Israel, like me, we are the key, because we are the ones who can actually, we are the friends, the peers, the colleagues, the neighbors, and we can do this if we create spaces where we can actually start building and imagining that. And the right understands that. And they are purposely, legally destroying these spaces. Look at campuses. Campuses are one of the most magical places, you know, potentially. They are where the revolutions happen. We're speaking today, summer of 2023. There is a bill that passed in preliminary call, which prevents Palestinian students from expressing any kind of support for Palestinian liberation or, you know, using any uh, uh, national symbols. And they understand the danger of creating safe spaces for Palestinians and Jews to imagine a shared homeland. And in talking about this time, this moment that we're living in, which feels very on edge and also very historic and potentially sort of a turning point moment, it's times like this where people realize that the system isn't working as it is. People can kind of possibly open to a different kind of paradigm. Like this is the opportunity of this moment is to sort of break out and think about not just sort of Israeli democracy, which is what the struggle in the streets focuses on, but the bigger story of how do we unstick ourselves? How do we unravel ourselves from this terrible, terrible knot of violence and endless conflict? All right, uh, this is all the time we have today, and it's also a wrap on season two. We really thank you for listening and hope to see you again soon. Groundwork is created and produced by me and Yoshi Fields. Content and audio editing by Yoshi. Additional content editing by Elisheva Goldberg. Joel Shupak scored the piece. Art and design by Nick Acosta. We need your help. If you found what you just heard meaningful, if you think this kind of reporting is important, then please take a few seconds right now and rate us and give us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. We depend on you to make these stories. So make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. This show is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. 
New Israel Fund is the premier funder and organizer of progressive Israeli civil society, with over $300 million from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of organizations, working for change on the ground for over 40 years. The Alliance for Middle East Peace is the largest and fastest growing network of Palestinian and Israeli peace builders. You can learn more about them in their websites in nif.org and allmap.org. And you can learn more about our show there or at groundworkpodcast.com. Our theme music is by System Ali, a multilingual binational hip-hop group whose cultural activity is deeply rooted in the communities where they work. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode narration was recorded by Ohad Basson. Make sure to subscribe and thanks for listening. Shukran al-Mutaba. Tudah.